take your seats, please turn to page one of your Bible, Genesis chapter one, starting at verse one and reading to verse three. Genesis one, one to three. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. There was a time in my life when I was not thankful for the biblical creation account, but rather embarrassed of it. I used to think that uh, it wasn't what sophisticated, smart people really thought about uh, the beginnings of the earth. After all, the museums and textbooks seem to have opposite assumptions. I suppose I was embarrassed by what I perceived as the simplicity or or the backward, down-home quality uh, of Genesis 1. I never thought I'd want to begin my evangelism or my apologetics, the defense of the faith, by turning to Genesis. I want to avoid all that. But within the last few years, my, my thinking has changed entirely. What I had been embarrassed of, I'm now deeply thankful for. That's the the theme of this service and of this sermon, things we're thankful for. And perhaps you have a a chance this week to sit around your table with your family and say the things you're thankful for. And as the preacher, I get 30 minutes to do so. And so I hope that uh, you'll be thankful for what I am also as we examine this text together. I'm thankful for the what the how and the who of creation, all found in these first three verses. And and I I turn here because I do think we live, as as Jordan Peterson is so uh, well known for saying, in an epidemic of meaninglessness, an epidemic of meaninglessness. There was almost as many men killed in America last year in car accidents as by suicides. The numbers, uh, statistics for the rise in suicides has uh, been astounding. Over a 40% rise among men since 1999, and a 34% rise among young men versus uh, ages 25 to 34 uh, since 2010. All this is a kind of background for what I uh, hope to show us in some way. Why, why the, the, the what, the how, and the who of creation is so important and a great starting place. So first, the what of creation and and why I'm thankful for it. And of course, uh, perhaps the first thing we should see in verse 1 is the beginning. Uh, It's in the beginning. It's it's the when of creation. It's found right there in the first words. And and what's so interesting to me about that is that when when you start to think about the when of things, about even what time is, even a moment's reflection perhaps is enough to, to clue you into the, the mystery of some of our most basic assumptions. What is time? How would you define time? And of course, the scientists have good different attempts 
Uh, some would say time is what is measured by clocks. Others uh, as a, some kind of succession of events. But any, any contemplation of time and what it is um, demands a, 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 a substance. It demands a matter. It demands a what. That's what I'm, I'm getting to. Uh, this, this claim to have an in the beginning and a God creating it, a heavens and an earth, creating what there is, it's an ultimate claim. It is a definitive claim. It's quite the way to start the book for paying attention. You see, in a sense, whatever you find at the base of the universe, when you go back and ask, beginning, beginning, what happened before then, what happened before then, what happened before then, whatever you, you, you get to at the end, that, we might say, is your God. Whatever the what is will be foundationally determinative to your understanding of the universe and, and your place in it. And as you dig down into the beginnings, uh, what it is that your metaphysical spade strikes as bedrock, that ultimate mystery at the base of all things, that is finally, and I would argue ultimately determinative. Now, uh, both the ancients and the moderns, both in the time in which Moses is writing Genesis and our fancy science of today, ironically, I would argue, end in very similar places. The ancients, in their paganism, and then their general origin myths kind of fall into a uh, not-so-particular pantheism. Pantheism is the belief uh, that God is everything, and everything is God. For example, in the ancient Greek origin myth, we have from Hesiod in the 8th century B.C., his work, The Theogony, four beings spontaneously generate out of chaos one of them being Gaia or the earth. That is, what exists is, in fact, the God and the gods, and the gods are what exist. And in, from them, we'll see the, all that there is uh, exist. Indeed, in this myth, the earth and all that is made up of the same stuff, the same ontos or being as God. There is really no true fine distinction between what is divine and what is not. Similarly, with the Enuma Elish, from the 18th century B.C. Babylonian myth, Marduk creates uh, the earth and the skies, or the earth and the heavens, with the body of Tiamat, who is in a sense his mother of sorts, whom he has cut in half and defeated in battle. And it's similar in so many of the ancient origin stories. It's uh, what uh, Disney so well portrays for us in the movie Pocahontas as Pocahontas sings, I know every rock and tree and creature has a life, has a spirit, has a name. Or it's perhaps more, more uh, commonly found in the kind of Eastern mysticism of Marie Kondo as she helps us organize our houses, and, and as we get rid of each thing, we, we thank each object we're getting rid of for its service to us. Because we should see that the whatness of the creation to the ancient pagans and to some moderns is essentially a, a monism or a oneness. All that is, is. There is no fine distinction to be properly kept between divine substance and regular everything else. What they hit at the rock bottom of existence with their metaphysical shovel is the same stuff they've been shoveling all along. I would argue ironically so with our modern secular, secularist origin mythos. 
What uh, did everything come from in our modern origin myths? Well, the Big Bang, of course. That is what seems to be there in the beginning, a big ball of mass and potentiality that seems to explode into all things. But if in modern science we allow the mythos of the Big Bang, this giant mass compacted together before it explodes, we come to the existence of all that is to be in simple matter or material. The isness of things is a simple materialist worldview. You and I and the animals and the rocks and trees are not divine, but simply matter, simply more or less complicated, electrified chemical soups. It's all a monism. Again, we'll see a sort of oneness. Nothing is divine as everything is the same thing. See, both ancient and modern mythos end up in the same place. Bound by their ontology, these systems um, have a, a corresponding, a logical progression of a protology and eschatology. They come from the first thing, the same protology, and they end up ending in the same place, the same eschatology, the same final place. They have come from a oneness and will eventually enter back into a oneness. Indeed, the ancient Eastern mystics speech, speak of re-entering the Om or the kind of world spirit. Uh, the modern mythos says that we eventually come into a cold universe. As the universe continues to expand and expands fully, we will finally someday hit a steady state of zero degrees Kelvin and the energy of the universe ending in a kind of spread out material from its compacted material from which we sprang. And of course, their ontology, their understanding of being and substance, the isness of creation, the whatness of creation, has something to say about their protology and their eschatology, and then by definition, and connected to them, let's say their epistemology and their ethics. Uh, how do you know anything for certain? How is anything actually true? And how do we know uh, if there is a right or a wrong? Who, is, uh, who could be appealed to to finally say if there really is only isness, there's only what is, there is no truly transcendent standard by which judgment can be made, and we end up, we might call a, a nihilistic, might makes right monism. The only thing that matters in the end is what you can get out of life. So we're accidents here, coming from nothing, going to nothing, or coming from one thing and ending in that same kind of thing. It's all the same stuff, really, going to the same place in the end. What difference does it make? The universe is an empty, meaningless, cruel, cold joke. And I would argue that is the prevailing secular worldview. See, the, the whatness of the ancient and the modern creation myths end in the same place of meaninglessness. And that's why I'm ever so thankful for Genesis 1 1. In the beginning, God. That is, the first words of the Bible assert an infinite, eternal, and unchangeable being outside of, uh, if we could speak of being before time, above the rest of all things, outside time itself. The first line posits the most foundational point of theology. It's what Cornelius Van Til called the creator creature distinction, the creator-creature distinction. That is that there is God the Creator on one hand and everything else on the other. 
God himself is holy, set apart, unique in his very substance. His actual ontology is of a different order. He is before all things and different and distinct from all things and is no way to be confused with that which he has created. In the beginning, God created not himself, but something different from himself. Van Til explained it like this. The Bible does contain a theory of reality. And this theory of reality is that is that of two levels of being. The first of God as infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and the second of the universe as derivative, finite, temporal, and changeable. There is God, and there is you and all that is around you that is not God. And lest you ever be tempted to worship any created thing, anything of the creation, we ought to have this distinction in mind, lest you ever begin to think that you as a created one might give to the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable one anything he, he might need would make the whole thing ridiculous. No, this, this differentiation, this distinction in the first few words of the Bible relieves us of a monotonous monism. It relieves us from the hopeless and meaningless protology, for beginning, uh, and eschatology, and the morass of epistemology and ethics that's from nothing to nothing for nothing. It doesn't allow a, a might-makes-right way of thinking. It, it instead posits there actually is an infinite, eternal, and unchangeable standard by which all things may be judged. It allows that although our reality, our, our world is a moving target— God is not. And indeed, we have a consistent, knowable meaning, truth, goodness, and beauty in relation to Him. There is not a morass of relativism, but actually a fundamental difference at the med bedrock. Our, our metaphysical shovels dig to the bottom of things, and they find God at the base of all that exists. A Creator God is why I'm thankful for the what of our creation that's found here. Secondly, that the how of our creation is distinct from both ancient and modern as well. In the ancient pagan myths, contemporary to Moses is writing down Genesis, creation comes how? We might summarize by saying uh, by warfare and sexual intrigue. The gods slaughter one another. Um, Christopher Watkin helpfully summarizes the Greek theogony. He says, Uranus imprisons Gaia's children in Tartarus, which is Gaia's bowels, from which Gaia seeks revenge by asking her sons to castrate Uranus with a flint sickle. Cronus, the youngest son, lies in wait for his father when Uranus, let us use a euphemism here, uh, approaches his wife amorously. Cronus leaps out and severs his testicles and casts them into the sea. Of course, this eventually grows into Aphrodite and the creation of the world and so on. Further, in the new Elish uh, of the Babylonians, the origin myth is of Marduk making war on Tiamat, uh, his mother, and all her children, and of course, consuming the children in the end, and in the process, creating all that exists from the body of Tiamat. So, how do, what is the how of the ancient uh, mythos of creation? Well, the how is of, clearly, sexual intrigue and warfare. Might summarize it as a kind of chaotic, meaningless vicissitudes of some kind of higher powers. What about the modern mythos of creation? How did the world come to be as it is? Well, of course, as we said, the Big Bang happened, and time 
whatever that is, plus energy, plus mass, plus chance, whatever that is, and voila, our very complicated soup of our lives. Uh, Pete Holmes uh, is a comedian that had his bit go viral on social media, but he, he summarizes the point nicely. I don't know anything about P- Pete Holmes, so I don't suggest him, but he says this. I found it helpful. He says, some people believe God created the universe. Some people believe nothing created the universe, which is the funniest guess. And the nothing people make fun of the God people. They say, God doesn't exist. And I'm like, okay, maybe, but you know what definitely doesn't exist? Nothing. That's the defining characteristic of nothing. It is that it doesn't exist. So what are you talking about? Either you think it's God, something you can't see, taste, touch, or photograph, and science can't prove, or you think it's nothing, something you can't see, taste, touch, or photograph, and science can't prove. But I think we can all agree, if nothing, if your nothing sometimes spontaneously erupts into everything, that's a very magical nothing. And ask the nothing people, what happens when you die? And they'll tell you, nothing. You go back into nothing. And of course, Pete ends by saying, you mean you merge back with your creator? I don't know who Pete is, but he understands the implication of our origin myths. Indeed, we live in a world, I think, that does all too well, though perhaps not so able to articulate it. I would argue that this a mythos, this creation story, this secular from nothingness to nothingness is the needed metaphysical foundation of the horrors of the last century, of the Holocaust, the gulags, the cultural revolutions, the killing fields. If we are from nothing or everything, born by chance or nothing into eventual nothingness, then of course nothing matters. And people will live like it. They will live for pleasure or power and pulverize anything in their way to get it. Malcolm Muggeridge, the great British journalist, puts it so well. He said, if God is dead, somebody is going to have to take his place. It will be megalomania or erotomania, the drive for power or the drive for pleasure, the clenched fist or the phallus, Hitler or Hugh Hefner. And so the modern myth myth ends where the ancient one starts. Creation by chaos, creation in the ancient world by warfare and sexual intrigue, and the modern myth ends in the same place, of course, by power or pleasure. Christopher Watkin helpfully summarizes again, differences with the biblical account are stark. In the Bible, there is no conflict, no murder, No sense that God creates wholly or in part from his own body and no copulation. The biblical account is peaceful, systematic, and ordered, not agonistic, haphazard, or violent. And I would add that this biblical account in Genesis 1 is beautiful, deeply meaningful. Why? Well, because of how God creates. How does he create? What is the how of the creation narrative? As the confession says, by the word of his power. That's what it says there in verse 3. And God said. And it's the refrain that said at the beginning of every day. It's the way of him creating. It's by his speech. He speaks and creates ex nihilo out of nothing. He shows absolute control. He has no rival. There is no bloodbath. But rather, a chapter with a cadence 
that almost sings like a song. He displays who he is, the one who is all-powerful, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and his being, wisdom, and power. There is no fight between darkness and light, between order and chaos. He does not need to wrestle the Leviathan of the deep, as he explains to Job. He made him and can unmake him. Or as my mother used to tell me, I brought you into this world, and I can take you out of it. This creation by ordered speech, rather than by warring chaos or serendipitous chaos, is the only kind of creation mythos that allows for any true kind of meaning, intention, design, actual beauty behind it. Indeed, uh, the, the session of our church has uh, voted to allow the Savannah Symphony Orchestra to have a concert in our building in 2025, and we debated it in the session for a while, and uh, I, I wanted to make the point, but it was beside the point, really, because somehow it's symphony concerts, they don't allow a preacher to stand up and preach. But I, I thought it, 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 um, it's rather um, proper for us to host such a concert, because I think that we, I mean Christians, are the only ones who can really give an account for why what the orchestra plays is beautiful and not just popular. If uh, what they play is truly transcendent, if something that is made from the physical uh, instruments truly resonates in the human soul, that reflects an intention and design, an order made by an orderly God who, with communicable, clear speech, made all things, there is some reason for an actual beauty and not just a kind of relativistic popularity to old music. Indeed, in a world that largely doesn't believe in objective reality, of objective true truth, or in the objective reality of beauty itself, we believe in a God who is beautiful, and all things that are true and good reflect His beauty. But a creation not by chaos, but intelligible, intended speech makes for a beautiful and meaningful universe, as we find here in Genesis 1. That's why I'm thankful for the the what of creation, the how of creation, and finally, of course, the, the who of creation. The who is God there, of course, in the very first verse, the infinite, eternal, unchangeable one, who by definition is independent, we've said, of His creation. He is not His creation. He's distinct from it. And this independence of God is no small doctrine. The doctrinal or theological word for it is the aseity of God, that God is ase, or unneedful of anything we could offer Him. And of course, this, this aseity of God, which we found, find in, in the fourth word of the English translation of the Bible, is the precondition for any kind of God of grace. If God was not independent and He needed something from us, Grace could not exist. We would be caught in a works righteousness universe. But no, because God Himself is before and above all time and creation, distinct from it, unneedful of it, because He is, as He revealed Himself to Moses, a God who is an all-consuming fire, who is in the bush without consuming the bush. He is the all-consuming fire, the energy source in the universe that needs no fuel for it, he Himself is an independent God. He is the I am who I am. Therefore, there can be such a thing as grace. 
Therefore, there can be a God who gives of himself tirelessly, who is generous from generation to generation, who needs no thing from us, but in his own fullness, in his own aseity, is actually able to love, to give of himself truly and fully. No, the, the God of creation who here we ought to be thankful for, a God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and ironically here, even in the opening three verses, we should notice from the whole of the Bible, a kind of multiple. Not only do we have God in verse 1, who created all things, but we also see in verse 2 the, the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters, and in verse 3, the speech of God or the Word of God, which we have explained for us as John picks up these very same words in his uh, account, his gospel account, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God in the beginning. An allusion here, a clarification here, an interpretation, I think, of Genesis 1, 1 to 3, that in case we were confused, from the very beginning, the God who's spoken of in chapter 1, verse 1, and the fourth word in the English, that God is not a a solitary God, not a monistic God, but a a God who is indeed, from the very first three verses of the Bible, a relational God, a God whose spirit is distinct from Him, whose speech is distinct from Him, and yet who we know from the whole of the Bible is perfectly unified, a three-in-one God, a a trinity God, not a, a simple modist and who is simple power. That would be, perhaps, if there was only one, a singularity of God, Power would be the great potentiality, the great characteristic of God in His universe. But no, if the God before creation from the very beginning is not a simple potentiality, but is Himself a self-contained relationality, then the central characteristic of God is not power, but is love and His relationality even within the Trinity. No, this God who is here in the beginning, this God who is love, is a God of grace, who has no rivals, the ase God, the God of creation I am thankful for. The who, the how of His creation, that He makes an ordered universe by His speech and not by chaos. And, and the what of creation, that it is in fact distinct from Him and not Himself. I'm thankful for all of this. Indeed, as the hymn writer puts so well, this is my Father's world and to my listening ears all nature sings and rounds me rings the music of the spheres. This is my Father's world. We as believers have no shortage in any way of things to be thankful for. Even within the first four words of your Bible readings, we have enough to praise Him and thank Him for continually. As we pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do give thanks for the good earth You made, for the beauty of your creation, the way you even communicate yourself through its design. And Father, I pray that we would be thankful and thankful continually, never confusing ourselves for you, never thinking that we are somehow gods and have something over on you, but knowing, O Lord, that all we have is a gift from you. Help us to be thankful always. In Jesus' name, amen.